Today the word is from uh, John 2, 13 through 25, or the passage. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be wrapping up the second chapter in the Gospel of John here. While you're turning there, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come and gather together as your body and to engage in worship. And our hearts break for those who are not yet here with us, those whom we know, who do not love you, who do not worship you, who do not follow you, God. But we ask that you would work through this time, Heavenly Father, when we come and see you in your word, in your text, that we would come and see the beauty of your Son and see how beautiful it is That the dwelling place of God, of you, is now with your Son. God, give us eyes to see. So many before us have not seen this glorious truth. So many around us now and so many who will come after us will not and cannot see this truth. So God, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the beauty that we have in your Son. Give us eyes to see the truth that you have before us. Amen. Amen. The Yosemite Valley in California is a dear place in our family. It's the type of place when you go when you're just getting acquainted and you go there and you fall yet deeper and deeper in love with your future bride. There's Bridal Falls, El Capitan. You can see these 
ridiculous men and women go, hey, there's something about as straight up and down as a brick wall. Let's climb that. That'd be awesome. And then, and they do. Or there, you have the, the summit of, the summit of Half Dome, or the Mariposa Grove with these massive, massive trees. And it, it's just, it's, it's captivating and it's beautiful and it's the type of place where artists go and realize that all they're doing, the best artistry that they have, is a mere copy of some other original artist, and that is God. But there's one reason that makes it, the landscape so beautiful there. It's because it's been burned to the ground. <laughs> That's why it's so beautiful. You have these fires that come through long ago, burn it all to the ground, and out of those ashes come rising up little seedlings, little seedlings, new trees. And that which is there now is even more beautiful and grand than that which was there before the fire, before it was just laid to waste. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. Is that the old has been burned to the ground. It's been cleansed by Christ. The temple is done. The old religious life of of, of sacrifices to God is being replaced by the thing to which it points to, and that is Christ. So the main idea that I, I hope you get out of this as you read this, as you're reading through this, this cleansing of the temple, I hope you realize that the dwelling place of God is now in Christ. Christ is now the dwelling place of God. It's not in the temple anymore. It's not in the tabernacle anymore. No, but it is in Christ and in Christ alone. So what are we going to see here? In verses 13 through 17, we're going to see the, the destruction and the cleansing of the temple. And the sweeping aside of evil. Burning it down, basically. So that, as we see in verses 18 through the end, you can have this restoration of life and this life in Christ. So let's go ahead and begin here and look at the text. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, with the sheep and with the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. For 17, the disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So we're here early and again in the book of John. So let's recall where we're at. Um, Christ has come, but he's not what he's always been. He's, he's always been here. He's come in the flesh. He's always existed. Then you have this the testimony of John. And it, it begins to frame, how do we understand who Christ is? He's come in the flesh, but now how do we understand? Well, behold the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. And he comes, his disciples, and he tells them, you haven't seen anything yet. Follow me, stick with me, and you're going to see the heavens open. And you're going to see 
angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that flows into this wedding in Cana, remember, from last week. When you see the old way of life, the old wine has, has run aground, it's, it's dry, it's dried up, there's nothing there. But now you have this new wine, this new wine of Christ, that is fulfilling the old, but is far greater than the old ever was. We, and then we talked a little bit about how to read the text. Remember how it's, it's, it's the text. It's not the event that's behind it. So in the text, in the Word of God, we don't have to look for a story behind it. The text itself is the revelation of God. It doesn't contain the revelation of God as though it was poured into it. No, the text itself is the revelation of God. So now we're going to be looking at another little thing about how to read narrative. Um, you have to understand why is John putting these events in the place in which they're at. The temple cleansing. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And recall where the temple cleansing's at. It's in the Passion Week. Right? So you have the triumphal injury. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next event is the cleansing of the temple. So now you have to wrestle with yourself. Are there, is John wrong? Right? Is that what's happening? Why is John having it here? He's in, he's in chapter 2. Right? And already he's cleansing the temple. What is... So what John is, is, is doing is pulling the story, bringing it up front. And this exposes how we approach the text. We come to the Bible and we read the Gospels like it's going to be a documentary. Like when we watch a documentary, we just want the raw data and let me make sense of it and give it to me in sequential order. That's not what John's doing. What John is doing is taking all of this, manufacturing it, turning it, and presenting you with this finished, beautiful gospel. So the documentary and how we expect it is that it's going to be just bushels full of wheat. What John is doing is sifting through all of these stories that he could have told. And he's pulling all of them and crafting them in this order. And giving you a finished loaf of bread. So don't be critical when you see that this cleansing of the temple is not laid like the other gospel authors have. Well, that's fine. John's point is not to present to you a sequential life of Christ. Generally, he begins in the... You know, comes in the beginning and dies in the end and is raised. Yes. But not everything of it is a sequential ordering of all that has happened. And that's okay. That's okay. What he's trying to do is make you believe. That's his. That's why he wrote it. He's not... Luke is the historian. John, he's trying to make you believe. In Christ, that He's the Son of God, that you might have life eternal. So it's okay. You have to be okay with it. It doesn't make it less factual. It just means that we're approaching it from the wrong way. So if it's, it's an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts. And how do we approach this text as John would have us to understand it? So with that in mind, let us, let's go to the text here. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up up, up to Jerusalem. 
There's several times here in the Gospel of John when the Passover is mentioned. It's here in chapter 2. You have chapter 6. And then chapter 11 as well where that Passover is mentioned. And that's usually how the... Um, Throughout history, they've been able to say the ministry of Christ, and you hear that's about three years long. It's out of these Passover events, out of John. That kind of gives you a little framework of what's happening in the ministry of life in, of Christ. And this particular Passover is probably happening around 27, the spring of 27 A.D. And John is again has already introduced him as the Lamb of God who will come and take away the sins of the world. And now we're at the very place where sacrifices happen. He's gone into the temple. And he's horrified. He's gone into the temple. And he's horrified. Some of you carry deep, deep wounds from previous churches. Maybe from this church. (laughs) Talk to me afterwards. (laughs) Some of you carry deep, deep wounds from life in the church, or people in the church. Unfortunately, it's more common than you would think. And it's more egregious than you could ever imagine. That you be in this place where the people of God gather together to worship. And what we see in so many churches is no different than what Christ saw. He's going to be horrified at what he sees. And this, this temple, we can't, we can't overlook the centrality of the temple here of where he's going. You people, they, they ascend up to Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem in terms of topography and also in the spiritual ascent. You're going up to encounter God and to engage with God. And so the, the centrality of the question, so the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, you have these questions about how do I live out my religious life? My devotion of God, where do I go? Well, then you go to the temple. That's that's how primarily how you live it out. Or as they wrestle with this, us as a nation, what gives us any significance as a nation amongst the other nations? Well, it's again, the answer is in the temple. You are the stewards of the presence of God in the temple. That's what gives you significance among all the other nations. It's not your military and might. It's not your economy. It's not anything like that. But no, you have the presence of God Also what dictates the cultural ebb and flows of our lives. What do you do? Again, you look to the temple. Three times a year, you're making this pilgrimage up to the temple. The Passover, the festival of weeks, which is Pentecost, and then also booths. So much of the money that you save up is so that you can make these pilgrimages to the temple. To the temple. It's always in... Part of who you are, how you live, how you find your identity. So it's, it's nearly impossible to overstate the temple in terms of, of giving the people this personal and religious and a national identity. So right here, Christ comes walking in and looks what he, look what he finds. In the temple, he found those who were 
selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there. So what's happening here is that you, you go up and you make this pilgrimage. You're coming from these outlying areas. And you come and you make this pilgrimage into Jerusalem. And maybe, chances are you don't bring anything there, right? You're going to walk for three days and lug your sheep along? Probably not. So you have some money and then you're going to go bring it. Or if you do bring it... You know, maybe you're half day's journey away, a little outside of Bethlehem, perhaps, and you bring bring your sheep along, and then what will often happen? You bring it up to the priest, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry. That's just not good enough. You don't want to worship God with this, do you? Look, you didn't find a blemish. You'll find something wrong. And he goes, tell you what, go over to Eli over there. He'll help you out. He'll give you a really good deal. You know, if not, Eli, go go talk to Samuel. They're real good men. You can go trust them. And you, you can see how the game's being played here. Right. And this is no small thing. And Josephus, he tells us, about, he says, 256,000 of these sacrifices are happening over the Passover. A massive amount of exchange is happening here. And not only that, you have to buy your, your sheep or your oxen or your, your pigeons, whatever you can afford. You're, you're being charged way too much, but you gotta pay your temple tax as well. You gotta have to pay your half shekel temple tax. But chances are, you don't really have a shekel. The currency of the temple. You probably have still the Greek or Roman coins, or there's Persian or Egyptian coins still floating around. And so you have to exchange your currency. And not only did you overpay for this animal that you're going to sacrifice, but now you get to overpay to pay your temple tax. Because of the exchange rates, you're just, you know you're going to get fleeced. And it's into this that, that Christ begins to walk. So this greatest gift to them, the temple, his presence, the presence of God, rather than being a blessing. What is it? It's perverted. It's twisted. No longer is it reflecting the glory of God, but it's being cloaked in greed or sin. Men desiring to to build up their own wealth. Thinking that that is what they want in the midst of the presence of God. You see how horrible this is. Horrific this is. It's not that Christ was audacious in casting them out. It was how how patient of God that he just kill him on the spot. So if you think this this polluting greed and sin in the courtyard of the presence of God, you, you see the conflict has already begun. Before he gathers together his whip here. But let's go back to the text. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. He drives them out with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written... Zeal for your house will consume me. So this busiest time of the year, when all of the nation is kind of gathering in together, 
Christ comes in the midst of it all, fashions this whip together, starts driving them all. And what's amazing is that they don't appear to fight back at all. They don't. They go, yeah, dude's right. He's got us. And so it's not so much that he's physically imposing. It's one man and, and amidst the whole throng. So it's not so much that he's physically imposing over them. But the moral weight that is behind him and what he is doing cannot be denied. So be encouraged. If zeal for the house of the Lord spurs you on to do ridiculous things for the sake of righteousness. And you think, I'm only one and there's countless of them. It's the moral weight that is behind you that gives you substance. And it's the moral weight of the character of God and the nature of God that makes it irrefutable. So just as he's purging them now, just as he will purge them, he'll purge us, right? In the end... It's a little foreshadow of what's going to be happening. And no one will be able to stand against it. No one. You won't be able to stand against it all. Notice also he has no, no desire in correcting them. He doesn't engage with them in dialogue. and say, you know, I think your exchange rates are a little too high. I think this, this, these two pigeons should, you know... It should only cost four drachma. No, it's not that at all. He's not engaging them in dialogue. Because his purpose is not to correct them. His purpose is to cleanse them and wipe the whole thing out. Because he's pointing to something else. It's because of their hypocrisy and their impurity of worship that he's going to be cleansing them out. This is the same thing that Christ or that God did throughout the Old Testament. You continue in your sin. You continue in your sin. You continue in your sin. What happens? Babylonians come and knock on your door. And what do they do? They purge you and clean you and wipe you out. And God brings back something newer and something greater when he brings the people back. So this is a continuation of of purgings and cleansings that you've seen throughout all of the people of God, all of their history, because the Lord desires a purity of worship to come so irreverently into the presence of God is not acceptable. It's an act of reverence and devotion to come into the presence of God and for these men to come in into the temple and into the courts with with a mind to enrich themselves rather than to serve the Lord with all humility and meekness and gladness it brings swift judgment in Leviticus 2 it it shows the, the role of the priest what happens here just a little inside of what's happening it says in Leviticus 2, Moses writes, When anyone brings a grain offering to, to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. Okay. They bring it in. They bring in this fine offering. 
They are to pour olive oil on it and put incense on it and take it to Aaron's sons, the priest. Okay, so now we're going we're gonna to bring it to the temple. And what does the priest do? Tell him it's not good enough? No. What does the priest do? The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn it as a memorial proportion on the altar. The role of the priest is to aid and to encourage and to help others in their worship. Not to allow others to pollute the purity of worship that is happening. Just let me tell you, may God strike me dead. If I ever do this, or if any of the elders ever do this to this house of God and to this congregation. Rather than aiding and encouraging worship, if we pollute it, before you even notice it, may God strike us dead. It's not about us. It's about the act of worship and devotion and and seeing God in all of His glory. God, God have mercy on us. So did you notice the, the claim of, of divinity as well? How he, he said, how does he refer to the temple? It's, it's my father's house. Abraham spoke of his father's house, but it was his father's house that he was leaving in Genesis 12, 1. He's leaving his father's house. David speaks of his father's house in 1 Samuel 17, where he says that it's his father's house that will be free from the taxes of Saul because he quite aptly killed Goliath. And then we see also that the temple is not referred to as my father's house, but it's referred to the house of the Lord. And the Solomonic temple, when they Solomon has his great prayer and they make these sacrifices, and then what happens is that the priests come out of the holy place and a cloud filled the house of the Lord. The presence of God has come into the temple. See how it's referred to? Either the house of the Lord, or any time anyone says my father's house, they mean their biological father's house. But there's only one that can say of the temple that it is my father's house. And that is Christ. It's not, it's not so much the whips that's getting all of the attention. But you start claiming that the temple is the Father's house. You're claiming that you are the Son of God. This cleansing and purifying, it's the very thing that the prophets longed for. They longed for this thing. Malachi 3. He said, Behold, I... They send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist. I'm preaching on it marvelously. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into this temple. Here we are. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Why? Why are they going to purify? So that they may bring offerings in righteousness. Not in greed. But that they may bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
And here's, here's the beautiful thing. Is that you want this cleansing. This is what you want. This is what you want. It's painful, yes, absolutely, but it's what you want. The psalmist writes out, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who come in, who can come into the presence of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? How is this going to happen? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In Psalm 24. Go down to verse 7 of the same psalm. How is this going to happen? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, ancient of ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That is who will purify you so that you can come in to the presence of God. John writes it this way. He says, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, His Son. This is my Father's house. The blood of Jesus, His Son, what does it do? It cleanses us. It purifies us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the moment. This is what you want and this is the moment. That we just don't read about it and we go, God, do that for me. Cleanse my heart. Purify my heart. Whatever it might be, God. Whatever might inhibit my worship to you. Whatever bit of greed, whatever bit of pride, whatever bit of lust, whatever it might be. God, purge it out of my heart. I don't care how much of my life you have to take out, but God, whatever's left, I want it to be clean. And if you kill me to do it, then kill me, God. But I want to be clean. So we've seen this destruction and the cleansing of evil here. Now let's look at the text again and see the restoration of life. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign? Show us the sign. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And actually, it wasn't even done at that time. But just so you know. It's taken us 40 years, 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the, descent, from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture. And the word that Jesus had spoken so they can't stop him, right? All they can do is ask for a sign. And throughout throughout Scripture, God's been giving numerous signs. So it's natural that they would ask for a sign. He's been, give me a sign. Well, here's a burning bush. Give me a sign. Okay, your staff will turn it into a snake. Give us a sign. Okay, well, here's manna. Here's a parting of a sea. A sign after sign after sign of sign. Here's the walls are going to come crumbling down. But these signs, are they're never enough. Do you continue when you disbelieve, when your evidence is just based on, when your faith is just based off this one sign, this sign, this sign. But Christ comes. And when we're, when we're asking about a sign, it's evidence of unbelief. You notice that? If you fully believe, if you're fully content, you're not going to ask for a sign. So the, asking for a sign is evidence of unbelief. And we do the same thing, right? 
We continue to ask because of our lack of faith. Asking for God for more signs. We've all been there. Crying out to God like we've never fervently prayed before. God, if you will just give me this one thing and then I'll serve you. Or if you'll just pull me out of this situation, then I'll, then I'll serve you. Just give me a sign. Just give me a sign. Whatever it might be. Let us not ask for any more signs, but rather cry out like the father of the boy. In Mark 9, who's cleansed from an unclean spirit. He just cries out, God. He doesn't ask for more signs, but he just goes, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We're able to cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, because we've been given the ultimate sign. The resurrection of Christ from the dead. There's no other sign. There's nothing else you need than to have that as your foundation and the basis of all of your faith. The resurrection is enough, which is why Christ then points to it. That's it. There's no other signs. You want proof for your faith? Christ rose from the dead. What's your hope in life? Christ rose from your from the dead. How could I possibly get through this situation? Well, Christ rose from the dead. That's why. It might be bad, but you might die. Okay. But Christ rose from the dead. That's the sign that you need for your faith to build it upon. And when Christ begins talking about the temple here in verses 13 through 17... That uses the word hiros, which is kind of the, the temple, but then the courts around it. And then Christ starts talking about the temple, and he doesn't use that word, but he starts using another word, nos. This sacred place, the holy of holies, where God dwells. So it's focusing in here. And he tells him, destroy this temple. This is the temple. This is the place where the presence of God dwells. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And there's nothing they can do to suppress him. Just like Christ working in your heart. There's nothing you can do to suppress it. Crucify him and, it will, and he'll be raised up again. Suppress Christ and he will triumph. And from that generation on until now, until all of glory and throughout all of our eternal worship... Christ raised from the dead is more than enough. But obviously, they don't get it, do they? And they, they say, well, no, it's, it's taken 46 years for us to build this temple. And you're, you're going to raise it up in three days. They don't have the eyes of faith to see what he's really talking about. He's talking about the place where God and man will dwell together in Christ. And everything else, old is being pressed aside. But that the new place of God is, you can't see it. It's right before them and they can't see it. Just like me, for decades of my life, I, it was right there. I couldn't see it. I could recite Luther's Catechism. But I had no faith whatsoever. It was right there, but I couldn't see it. But the result after the resurrection is belief. You see, look at this here, verse 22. After 
He was raised from the dead, and then the disciples are remembering back. This is John uh, giving a little narrative of the author, what's happening here, kind of feeling it in, the, the whole story here. Now, when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed. They believed the scriptures. And the word that Jesus had spoken, putting the words of Christ on par with Scripture. Everything that we've known, add Scripture, add Christ's words onto this. And they believed. So what's wrapping up here, kind of what's, what's the big picture here? Why did, this is why John brought it up to the front and didn't leave it at the end, this cleansing and purging of the temple. In the context of Canaan, this Canaan, this Canaan wedding, it's the old has been pressed aside and then we have the new cleansing and that's kind of a semi-private thing now we have that same thing on a much larger scale happening out in public the old is pressed aside and the new is coming and rising up and christ is now the place where the presence of god will dwell he said this temple i am the temple he says i am god The old is gone and the new has come. So what do we do with this? If this is true, what does it look for what does it look like for the Spirit of Christ to, to live this out? Two things I'll be brief. Try to be brief. Number one, be zealous for righteousness. As Patrick told me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Set yourself on fire for the righteousness of God. We can't, as Christians, as a church, we can't stand idly by and watch the flow happen around us. How much do we need to see? How many children need to be killed because they're deemed unwanted? Is 60 million enough? Really? Is that enough? The mutilation of children, the permanent mutilation of children is happening. We cannot stand idly by. We know too much. And we'll be far more guilty than any of them if we stand idly by and say nothing. We must engage the world, the fallen world. We must proclaim the righteousness of Christ. Loving them in the midst of it, absolutely. But to just stand back and not engage is to incur guilt upon guilt upon ourselves. How many in this time had just gone up and it's like, ah, that's the way it happens in the temple. Yeah, you just overpay. You just overpay. You overpay. It's been going on for generations. It's just the way it's done. No, our standard is, is not the way it's been done in the past. That's not our standard of righteousness. It's the Word of God. That's our standard of righteousness. Who God is, the nature of God. That's our standard of righteousness. We cannot stand idly by. We must, as a church, engage the world. Confront the world. We're... Number one, engage the world. Conquer the world. Exercise dominion. The righteousness of God. Bring it out. Number two, bring it in. The presence of God is in the body of Christ. As Adam said in the beginning. 
We are now the body of Christ. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1, the church, which is his body, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church of God, we are the body of Christ. And with that same zeal that Christ purged the temple, we should be purging our own temple here. It should be our continued prayer that our body, that he would purge us. Not just individually, but as a corporate church, that he would purge us of all of our sins as well. So let's be zealous for righteousness. Righteousness outside of this body and righteousness within this body. For the dwelling of God is with Christ. And only the purged and only the pure and only the clean will come into his presence forever. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would purge us and cleanse us. Christ is pure and Christ cleanses God. Purify us. Purge us of our sins. Whatever they may be, God, cut it out. Like a cancer that is killing us, God, cut it out. Cut it out. Not, do not leave one cell behind. And how much ever you would take, God, take it up and remove the sin from us. Purge it out. Let us be pure to come into your presence as we come now to the table, God. We ask that you would give us unity as a body. Unity that we have. Let us delight that as a gathered body, we are now the body of Christ, the body of your Son, the dwelling place of God. Let us reverently and joyfully Come to the table. Let us reverently and joyfully partake of communion together with our brothers or sisters. Let us reverently, solemnly, and joyfully be cleansed by your spirit that we might dwell in your presence forever. Amen. Amen.